1: Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. And as always, QXMD is going to lead into our episode today. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate. Over five hundred easy-to-use decision support tools, and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com/apps. Again, that is qxmd.com/apps. Over the past few months, I think you know, by far and away the the most requested topic um, has been some sort of a, a COVID nineteen kind of themed episode. Um, you know figuring out where we stand now that you know some of the dust is settling from our the early pandemic days. So this episode is going to focus on just that, and so lucky to be joined by uh, two amazing guests, Dr. Uh, Mitchell Buckley and recurring guest, uh, Dr. Amy Zerba, to um, provide some updates in COVID-19 pharmacotherapy. Um, now, most of the episode is going to kind of focus on on three things here. So no, we're not going to be um, rehashing hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin. Um, we're going to focus on tocilizumab, corticosteroids, and anti- Anticoagulation. And there's going to be a little bit of like a, a grab bag or what I like to call potpourri section um, kind of at the end. So Dr. Amy Zerba is a clinical pharmacist in the medical ICU at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Uh, She completed her undergraduate work and doctor of pharmacy degree at the Midwestern University School of Pharmacy. And thereafter, Dr. Zerba completed her PGY-1 pharmacy at Grady Health System, followed by a postgraduate year two pharmacy residency in critical care at the University of Washington Harborview Medical Center. Dr. Zerba is a panel member of the NIH COVID-19 Guidelines- Don't worry, we'll definitely be talking about that, Um, as well as an author on the um, surviving sepsis campaign COVID-19 guidelines. She's an active member of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Now, Dr. Mitchell Buckley earned his PharmD from the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. He completed his PGY-2 training at the University of Arizona and currently serves as a clinical specialist in the MICU and the PGY-1 RPD at Banner University Medical Center, Phoenix. He has been involved in helping shape COVID response and treatment strategies in the ICU as part of an interprofessional team last spring with a focus on anticoagulation. So Amy and Mitch, appreciate you both joining me today. How are you doing?
2: Hi, Nick. Doing great. It's a pleasure to be here again. Thank you for having me.
0: Nick, doing great. Uh, It's definitely an honor to be speaking with everyone today.
1: I think it's going to be great. And to be honest, we have a few things to cover. So I think uh, we'll save a little bit of the small talk for the end and we'll kind of get going here. so, we'll start off kind of talking about tocilizumab here. So, Amy, what led us to look into using this as a treatment for COVID-19? Was it something related to its mechanism of action, or was it something different, maybe more random, which it feels like some of our treatment options have been in the COVID era? Sure. That's
2: a really great question, Nick. And. Um... I think I first have to be remiss if I didn't just start off by saying there are a lot of drugs that were dusted off and used in COVID-19 initially uh, during the uh, initial surge of the pandemic, Uh, and we've learned a lot more. And so I I think this is so great having this episode and diving into some of the literature that we know specifically around tocilizumab. Uh, So I think as everybody probably knows on this call, tocilizumab is a recombinant humanized interleukin 6 receptor antagonist. So very early on in the pandemic, COVID-19, especially in the severe form, was described as a cytokine storm, and I'm, I'm using my air quotes when I say cytokine storm, <laughs> uh, that really just indicated a severe disturbance in the immune system, causing very high levels of inflammatory markers, including tumor necrosis factor and many of the interleukins, especially interleukin-6. So because of this, tocilizumab was from proposed as a potential treatment for those severe COVID-19 cases, because of the presence of this cytokine storm, you would be blocking the deleterious effects of one of those implicated cytokines, IL-6. However, just as I alluded to before, we've learned a lot more, even in the most severe and critical forms of COVID-19, it doesn't really represent a cytokine storm. In fact, when you look at the levels of inflammation in some of our more common ICU patients as those of sepsis or ARDS or other critical illnesses, though that those levels of inflammation are, are actually lower than what we've seen in some of those other patients I just previously described. Mm. So really on the basis of what I've said initially, it seemed very reasonable to consider tocilizumab. That, and it may, it may have had a benefit very early on, especially in those patients with the elevated inflammatory markers, um, You know, and obviously I think you're going to ask me a few more questions and we'll dive into maybe what we know now, what we knew then. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it really was a a drug that was already on the market. Um, It was used for patients with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, cytokine release syndromes related to CAR-T therapy. And so we dusted it off the shelves. It seemed like it had a good proposed mechanism and it was used.
1: So... You you hinted at this and I think this is a common theme in in the with looking at treatments in the COVID era, but you know, it finds, you know, we had some of these early studies, the the Covacta, the impacta, you know And what did those studies kind of show about the role of tocilizumab in the treatment of COVID? And then we have the more recent studies, you know, from the remap cap and recovery, you know, their big data sets and, you know, did our, has our knowledge or understanding of its place in therapy changed with the more recent publications?
2: Sure. Uh, Thank you. It's a huge question. And um, I will, Recap the <laughs> yeah. studies, hopefully hopefully pointing out some of the more important points of the study instead of talking about the, the very intricate details. But one thing I just want the audience to remember is very early on in the pandemic, there was a lot of retrospective reviews that were being published and a lot that surrounded tocilizumab. And the findings from these studies are extremely limited by low statistical power a heterogeneous study population with varying degrees of disease severity. And what we have to now reflect on is a low frequency of concomitant use of corticosteroids because it's obviously the, the publication of the recovery trial. Mm-hmm. But now to date, we have 11 randomized controlled trials looking at tocilizumab. And as you mentioned, the ones that have gotten a little bit more interest early on was the COVACTA and the IMPACTA trial. Starting with COVACTA, that, as I mentioned, was a randomized controlled trial looking at hospitalized patients with severe COVID pneumonia. The the patients enrolled in this trial were a bit of all spectrums of supplemental oxygen. You had about a third of patients on conventional supplemental oxygen, a third on non-invasive or high flow, and then a third on mechanical ventilation. Now, I will just for... um, the sake of doing so, I I will say the dose of tocilizumab, but I would just like the audience to know I'm not going to repeat it. It was the same for all of these trials. It was 8 milligrams per kilogram times 1 to a max of 100 milligrams, with some of the studies offering a second dose and some not. Now, with the Covacta trial, patients were treated on a median of 11 days from the time from symptom onset to randomization, so a little bit longer than what we're going to see with some of the, the next trials. Uh, This was done primarily in Brazil, and so remdesivir was not available at this time, so no one received remdesivir. And what's really striking is less than 50% of these patients received concomitant corticosteroids. You had about 36% in the topsilizumab arm and 55% in the placebo arm. Their primary endpoint was clinical status after 28 days, and they used that seven-point category ordinal scale, of which they didn't find any difference. Some important findings that we saw from secondary outcomes was that those patients who received tocilizumab had a shorter time to discharge and a shorter time in the ICU, uh, but no difference in mortality. So we're starting to see some, okay, maybe there's some some signals here. So then we we turn to the IMPACTA trial, which again is hospitalized patients with severe COVID pneumonia. Uh, they did, however, this is very important with this trial, they excluded patients on non-invasive ventilation and on mechanical ventilation. So, in essence, you could call this trial a pre-intubation trial. Uh, about 64% of these patients were receiving conventional supplemental oxygen, and they were on the hospital ward. Another important point of this trial is that it was they selected these patients who were considered high-risk minority patients. The patients received tocilizumab a median of eight days after symptom onset. Again, a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we see that 88 per, oh, about 80% of the patients received corticosteroids, and about 50% received remdesivir. Now, their primary endpoint was either intubation or death, which was significantly reduced in the tocilizumab group compared to those in the control. However, there was no difference in all-cause mortality. So, again, you can see what we're doing is we're building here. We're Mm -hmm. seeing uh, more concomitant therapies, uh, a faster time to give the drug, and we're starting to see better outcomes. So then a big splash with remap cap. It was an international adaptive platform open-label trial. We're going to focus now on critically ill patients that were enrolled in this trial. Uh, who were admitted to the ICU and receiving respiratory or cardiovascular organ support. T-exclusion is more than 24 hours since ICU admission, or if there was, death was imminent uh, and uh, a lack of commitment to full support, if these patients were severely immunosuppressed and that included neutropenia, or had an ALT five times the upper limit of normal. We see a high rate of corticosteroid use. Eighty-eight percent of patients received corticosteroids. Of course, this, came, this, tri- this trial was completely done after the publication of recovery, uh, and their primary endpoint was organ-free support. Patients who received tosilizumab experienced more organ, or sorry, more free, sorry, more days free of organ support. Uh, within the first three weeks. So we saw a median of 10 days versus no days in the control arm. In here, we start to see mortality difference. Significantly different was 28% in the tocilizumab arm and 36% in the control arm. Additionally, uh, the authors started to dabble in some inflammatory marker findings, uh, and they evaluated pre-specified groups based on CRP levels. And it's important to note that the effects were seen across all groups, however, the strongest and most statistically significant were those with the highest CRP levels, which was about 75 milligrams per liter or more. And then we're still awaiting a final publication. It's still in preprint, but we have some results of the recovery trial, which, again, we're looking at the same kind of trial design. It's an open-label platform. Uh, in which case hospitalized patients with suspected or confirmed COVID-19. The patients had to uh, be within 21 days of enrollment from that main platform treatment randomization and also had to have um, hypoxia and a CRP level of 75 or greater. Here you see a little bit of spectrum of of baseline oxygen use. About 45% of patients were on conventional supplemental oxygen. 41% 41% on high-flow or non-invasive, and only 14% on mechanical ventilation. We see 82% of patients receiving corticosteroids, and this truly was the largest study to date, over 40,000 patients. Mortality was lower in the tocilizumab. We have about 29% versus 33% in the control arm. And we also saw that among those not mechanically ventilated at baseline, a reduced risk of mechanical ventilation or death in those patients receiving TOSI. So a lot of information I just spilled out to the audience. Mm-hmm. So if you wouldn't mind, I'm going to recap and maybe give a little bit of a bottom line. Here. I love that. <laughs> so where, what, how do we take all this in its totality? How do we digest mm-hmm. it? And where might we use TOSI in our, our patients suffering from COVID-19? Well, I first, I, they have to be hospitalized and they have to be patients who are rapidly progressing. How do we define rapid progression? Well, it's probably somewhere in the middle of that three-day mark where somebody's going from conventional supplemental oxygen to either high flow or admitted to the ICU mechanically ventilated. If you look at the REMAP cap, it was about 1.2 days with an interquartile range of 0.8 to 2.8. The recovery trial was a median of two days with an interquartile trial range of one to five. So I think if you were going to be a little bit more liberal, you might define rapid progression within a five-day period. If you were being a little bit more restrictive, you might say two to three days. But again, I think the commonality here is just that rapid progression. Then I think it's going to be up to the individual to decide whether or not they're going to say plus or minus, looking at inflammatory markers. I think they mean different things to different people. They also, an inflammatory marker in somebody on the ward versus the ICU might mean different things. But a couple other salient points are that it should be used in combination with corticosteroids. I think that's pretty evident uh, from the data that we, we see where we don't see a difference with low use of corticosteroids, where now we do see a use in rapidly progressive patients on steroids. I also think a single dose is appropriate Um, in terms of using a second dose. We don't know much about the effects of that second dose, especially on adverse effects, since most of the patients only received one dose in a lot of these trials. Um, And I think we're going to wait a lot of future studies because we have a lot more combinations that are out there that may inform us that another combination is better or another one might be worse.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that makes it really hard understanding, like from the early data, when people aren't getting some of the standard of care treatments like corticosteroids, I think it may have blunted true responses or enhanced what we thought other, you know, we thought other drugs were great and maybe not as much. I think it makes interpreting some of these studies and understanding when it happened in like the COVID timeline a little more kind of challenging. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, you hinted at kind of talking about the inflammatory markers and and that we may or, or may not, depending on the provider or patient, that we may not do that. Now, when we use like tocilism for like cytokine release syndrome, for example, like a lot of times we're getting those routine labs like IL-6. So you know, we'll kind of leave the larger institutions out of it where they're probably doing those labs in-house, there's turnaround time, and so there's going to be less less questions from that. But for our smaller institutions that, you know, maybe those are send-outs, is there, logistically, is there going to be any real benefit in, in having those drawn if they're not going to be back for, you know, two to three days anyway?
2: Yeah, Nick, I, I think that's... uh. It's an important point you bring up, but I think even if we do include the larger institutions, I just quite frankly don't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. I I spoke a little about this in the beginning in that we're finding more information that COVID-19 levels of inflammation are sometimes even lower. Than patients who have non-COVID-19 ARDS or sepsis. And so I'm I'm not quite sure we know the role of routinely checking these markers, even giving a drug and following up on the markers. I'm I'm not sure what that means yet. I think we're all still kind of grappling with that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I don't think it informs decisions is the bottom line. I think I already said in terms of the C-reactive protein. Um, there's a lot of heterogeneity between the assays uh, between one institution and the next. So how you look even across the country and make a decision on a CRP level uh, is pretty hard from that perspective. I I also think that looking at one number is hard. Mm -hmm. We've we've learned that through critical care, right? (laughs) We always look at the trends. So if I have a level of, of 80 in a patient, but that came down from 100, that means something very different than somebody who now has a level of 80 and came from 20.
1: Mm-hmm. So I think you did a an amazing job of kind of summarizing where we think ultimately with the data that we have now, and I guess that's probably a disclaimer with all of this COVID stuff is, you know, we're recording this in early April. And I feel like every couple months, there's something that gets published or released that, that um, makes us rethink um, some of our things here. So just an FYI, for those who may be listening a little bit later, um, we're recording this in early April. But you did a great job of um, kind of saying, hey, in those who are those patients who are rapidly progressing, you might consider that. So ultimately, you know, you mentioned um, some of the adjunct therapy they should receive, but ultimately, like you know, what what other treatments should these patients receive, and what are maybe some other special considerations with tosilizumab? Are there any patients that you think um, this might cause more harm than benefit, and we should avoid doing it despite what's happening with their symptoms?
2: Yeah, sure. Uh, Just as any therapy, every patient has to be thought of on an individual level and and think about the risks versus benefits. Uh, I do believe, though, that TOSI should be used in combination with corticosteroids. Combining it with other therapies, I I think, is less clear right now in the literature, but I I think there's pretty strong evidence to suggest the corticosteroids and tocilizumab is a a good combination, per se. Uh, You know, Tosilizumab is known for causing neutropenia, and it did seem to cause that in some patients. In fact, some studies excluded patients who were neutropenic, but it didn't always translate into an increased rate of clinical infections. But just as you know, in the infectious diseases world, everybody looks at infections differently, how they're measuring it, how frequently, and it, it sometimes is a, a clinical decision and and sometimes subjective. Um, Another thing I'd like to point out uh, is that patients were also excluded if they had serious infections. So how either tocilizumab alone or the combination really of two potent anti-inflammatories, how they lead to patients who may be at high risk for bacterial and fungal infections, um, I think is still largely unknown. Um, and then finally, I just would like to point out that tocilizumab is known for causing a transaminitis. And outside of the REMAP-CAP study, not many of these studies had that as an exclusion criteria. And so I think it's still largely unknown, the effects on the liver after, after one dose in these COVID-19 patients who are oftentimes admitted with a slight transaminitis, not mm-hmm. necessarily five times the upper limit of normal, but they're certainly not normal. <laughs> so
1: mm-hmm. I, I
2: think there are some considerations and things to still study and learn about these combinations.
1: Well, and you, you mentioned the transaminitis. Some of these patients might be getting remdesivir. We know we monitor LFTs with that. So, you know, sometimes it can be multifactorial from that perspective.
2: Yeah, excellent point. Yeah.
1: So we're going to shift gears here for a second um, and kind of go to you know we and we've talked about it in the be in in this section of corticosteroids and I think that that's probably in terms of our treatment options has turned into um, the workhorse you'd you'd argue for for um, COVID nineteen patients now for for everyone listening the the other thing to just put out there is that um, Amy and Mitch debated this exact topic they did a pro con. Debate in um, July 2020 that was co-sponsored by ASHP and SECM. The links will be um, included in the handouts because you can still download the handout now. You can watch the webinar on on uh, their YouTube channel. So it's it's a fantastic listen. I definitely encourage um, everyone to do that if you haven't. Um, But luckily, they are um, coming back less in a in a pro con sense, unless unless on the fly we want to we want to make that happen. but uh, kind of seeing where we are now um, from July to now. Um, and so, you know, when looking into our, our COVID-19 treatment options, um, Amy, is the use of corticosteroids kind of basically considered a standard of care at this point? Are there any downsides or, or patients that we should not be giving this to? Or for the most part, should we be giving these to all patients with, with COVID-19?
2: Sure. Thanks, Nick. I, I I would just like to point out that Mitch definitely won that pro con debate. Um, <laughs> I, I will. I'll say a Highly little debatable. Bit. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had the advantage of the recovery trial, so I had my work cut out for me, but it was uh, a super fun having that debate. And I, I still stand on this. Uh, and so to answer your question, should everybody with COVID-19 get corticosteroids? And the answer, quite frankly, is no. Uh, we did learn from the recovery trial that those patients not requiring supplemental oxygen, uh, actually there was a trend to maybe some harm in that group. Uh, so I, I think that that's where we have some hard information. We also saw the the greatest benefit in patients who were mechanically ventilated. Now, where we did see benefit, but where I think there still remains questions, are the patients receiving supplemental oxygen? The recovery trial authors did not uh, give us any insight as to what level of supplemental oxygen those patients received. And since that compromised almost two-thirds of the study population, it would be kind of interesting to see if there were any subgroups in there that, that may fare better. For example, uh, somebody with multiple risk factors on very high, high flow settings probably would, would have, a, a, a better, um, or have a better response to the steroids than, let's say, a very young person with no comorbidities on two liters of nasal cannula. Um, So I think there's still, there's still that. Would I withhold steroids? No, because I can only use the information that I have in front of me. Uh, So I, I think that we would still give them to anybody receiving supplemental oxygen since that's what the recovery trial showed.
1: So I would say probably the most two common corticosteroid treatment regimens would be the dexamethasone six milligrams per day that was um, from the recovery um, trial or um, the DEXA-ARD study for our more uh, critically ill COVID-19 patients, which was the, the 20 milligrams of dexamethasone for five days and then 10 milligrams for five days. So, Mitch, let's kind of bring you in here for a second, um, more for a second, but um, we've, we've been hearing Amy in the beginning here. So do you think it's reasonable to use a modified dosing regimen, especially if these patients are getting um, pretty hyperglycemic from the, from the larger regimens, or should we, should we stick to what the trials used?
0: That's actually a, a good question. I'm sure most of us are probably facing that in our practices, but in true debate form, we'd like to address what Amy uh, stated earlier, as far as who won the pro con debate, because I really learned two lessons from that debate last year. One is um, Amy clearly won that. Secondly, uh, you never debate a New Yorker because you will lose. So, so audience members listen to that and take note. Uh, but to go back to your question here and say, okay, do we really need to kind of change things up and deviate from the studied regimen of? dexamethasone that's reflected in say recovery and the dexa ARDS. Um, and is that deviation warranted to kind of like mitigate adverse events such as hyperglycemia? And so um, the shorter answer is uh, I would say probably not. It's probably not in our best interest to do that. And, and here's why. Um, if we're going to do it to, to avoid adverse effects, if you look into kind of the larger RCTs of um, the ARDS and the COVID-19 steroid studies, uh, probably recovery index DEXA ARDS and CODEX are probably the, the bigger ones. And you're looking at adverse events, um, whether that be hyperglycemia, uh, GI bleeding, or new infections in the ICU. Um, I'm going to address the hyperglycemia first. So in DEXA ARDS, if we are looking at just hyperglycemia in the ICU compared to dexamethasone, compared to the, the control group, there really isn't any differences um, in those incidences. Uh, and the index ARDS found uh, no significant differences at all, and in fact, both of them had uh, kind of alarmingly high rates of hyperglycemia. Um, I think index ARDS, uh, the steroid group had like almost seventy seventy six percent, and the control group had seventy percent. Um, so they're both really high, but again, there was no differences between those two. Um, and the recovery, I don't recall uh, hyperglycemia uh, specifically being called out as far as that that incidence being reported. But the CODEX trial, um, again, they didn't look at just uh, the incidence of hyperglycemia. They actually looked at um, the use of insulin as a result of hyperglycemia. And in other words, it was high enough for warranting treatment that there, again, there was no differences in the steroid group compared to the uh, control group. So I think here the lesson learned is one, it's going to happen whether the steroids are on or not. <clears throat> clearly, it can increase your risk of, of experiencing that. But given all the other um, things that are kind of going on in the ICU population, I mean, hyperglycemia is probably uh, commonly seen in a lot of our practices that we do today. So, so is there enough, uh, I guess, uh, information to say, yeah, we should deviate from those regimens? Like I said, the, the, the short answer is, is no, because clearly we saw a, a strong signal of benefit And again, we don't know if we're going to see that benefit if we do something different outside of how it was studied. Mm -hmm. And again, there's no differences in those uh, adverse event rates. So so clearly, uh, I think if you're going to roll the dice, it's probably better to just kind of stick to the studied regimen.
1: Yeah, that gives us, as as pharmacists, some ability to help manage some hyperglycemia there, right?
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. You're not going to like say, okay, well, I need to go down on somebody's tube feeds because, you know, the the sugars are going high, you know? So, I mean, clearly it's a a, a collateral damage, but it's one that we can clearly manage through, um, you know, insulin uh, if, you know, if it's surpassing our our threshold. So,
1: Mm -hmm. so I, I think the other, um, conundrum or question that's starting to come up more and more or has been coming up for a while if if you're at a kind of like a tertiary referral center is you know is there is there any evidence for corticosteroid courses that are longer than 10 days or you know maybe this patient has had um, COVID for you know say eight nine 10, 11 days and then there's an acute decompensation um, you know, they go from nasal cannula to needing high flow to then maybe on, you know, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. You know, can we repeat a corticosteroid course there? Um, so we'll, we'll start with Amy here, but is there, I would say that's probably the last big question. Do we know what we kind of do in some of these more tricky scenarios here?
2: I don't think we know. And I think this is where it's that art of medicine that comes into play. Um, it's really tough because you're at the bedside of these patients. Like you just described someone who's maybe sitting on the floor for 10 days on high flow on day 11, they come in and get intubated. Now someone might say, well, it didn't work and now they're intubated. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then some, you know, the other side of you is saying, yeah, but maybe it didn't make them that much worse. You Mm -hmm. know, I think you you could probably talk yourself into any different argument that you wanted to. Um, What I have seen in those particular situations is we'll continue the steroids beyond 10 days for a few more days. And and we do a head nod to that every day. We're day 11. Yes, we're day 12. We're day 13. Okay, maybe now we need to call it quits because we may not see any benefit and just cause more harm from the long-term steroids. The, the harder one, I think, is, is when somebody's completed their 10 days and now they're coming back several days and they're decompensating, mm-hmm. but maybe they're at that same level of decompensation or just a slight decompensation. In most cases, I, I feel like we have tended here to hold off uh, and not give the steroids as a repeat course unless somebody's trajectory really plummets. But again, I think it's, it's, uh, it's taking each patient individually um, and, and recognizing the limitations of the, the void of data that we have and, and trying, you know, in the best interest of what we think might be good. I don't know, Mitch, do you do something similar or?
0: Something yeah, this, this is actually um, one of those situations in which we have debated fiercely here um and practice is is inconsistent within our health system enterprise as well as by provider um within the tens of us within each of the medical icu group so one of the questions that kind of commonly comes up is usually we're pretty good as far as like starting that um Uh, recovery trial regimen like right out of the gate um, Mm -hmm. to uh, fit most patients because usually pretty much everybody's intubated at that point and that's where the, the signal was for a benefit but the question becomes like okay let's say we complete that course initially and the patient further declines not necessarily doesn't get better but just actually worsens the question is, okay, is there some sort of thrombolic event going on? And, or is there now labeled a COVID-19 ARDS that now transitioned into more of like a persistent refractory ARDS, uh, so more kind of like a late onset. And so then the question is, if we just complete a steroid course, <clears throat> if we do restart it up, is that appropriate? And it's, we're really hard pressed without any data basically it's, it, we're just throwing opinions around. And so then the next question is, okay, if we pull the trigger and actually start the steroids, which regimen are we doing? Are we just repeating um, the uh, recovery trial? Do we now transition to dexair? Yes. Do we do even something different such as like, you know, the regimens out of like Steinberg and Maduri um, where they use a different agent at different doses and for longer periods of time. And so, you know, the truth of reflecting here at my practice um, nobody clearly knows the answer to that. And so we do agree with Amy with that, but based on the provider, the duration of that course drastically varies. I mean, sometimes we just committed to be like, Hey, we're in this for the long haul. We're, we're just going to go two weeks out and, um, just kind of take it day by day and slowly taper off for, for a longer period of time. Maybe they're, they're one of those types of patients, but, um, but clearly the, the message, to the audience, I think, is, like, we we don't have that data to really guide practice, so I think we're all just kind of um, trying to do the best that we can as far as, like, the limited information that we do have without just kind of just sitting by and and trying to make a decision for the best interest of the patient.
2: Yeah, and Mitch, one thing I'll add is, I'm not sure if you're seeing this also, but we have a lot of folks that are staying on the ventilator for prolonged periods of time uh, off of steroids who develop organizing pneumonia, uh, of which case then we start the one meg per keg of methylpred and they seem to do better quite frequently but again that's very that's down the road in their course that's certainly after they've received the recovery regimen
0: yeah and, and, and i totally agree with you and that is actually reflected in what we do because we don't after they complete the, the initial like 10-day course of the dexamethasone and things do get worse enough that you know, we're ready to restart a course of steroids. We don't go to the DEXA ARDS regimen because, again, that's kind of more of early onset, like right out of the gate of um, uh, ARDS developing. So we're going more towards methylpred and um, we have ranged anywhere from like uh, one to two mix per kg per day of methylpred and the duration, like I said, it's, it's kind of a crapshoot depending on who's on service, but um, we'll go typically at least longer than a week.
2: Yeah, we've done some really slow tapers on some patients where it's down by 10 milligrams yeah. per day per week <laughs> to yeah. off Yeah, long courses.
0: Yeah, and it's hard to say, like, if, if, did it truly make a difference? Because, again, this is all anecdotal in an uncontrolled environment. I mean, who's to say who's right or wrong? But uh, um, it, 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 I think it's a situation that's probably commonly encountered from a lot of the audience members. And I think the take the takeaway is that, I wouldn't necessarily say it's wrong, but however, without the data, I can't really necessarily promote it either, so,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest, I think that's the biggest question that remains, and I think the biggest, I think, I think um, most of the other, um, when when to use it, which patients and things are a little settled out, this tends to be the harder one, and, you know, Mitch, you brought up the, um, you know, the steroids and ARDS, and we know, when using it in late courses that it causes harm. And I think that kind of throws a wrench into some of this too. If the if they've been, you know, if they've had COVID for extended periods, you know, we don't want to do more harm than good either. So I think that was a really good point. Kind of bringing, bringing that up. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear, check breakfast, lunch, and dinner, check planning for what's next and how to save for it. That's where bank of America can help. Um, kind of topic, and I'd say this one was probably, is, is probably more polarizing than the other two, um, is talking about anticoagulation for patients with COVID-19. And um, so Mitchie, it sounds like you've been at your institution kind of involved in this from the, I'm guessing the early stages of the, of the pandemic. So walk us through some of like our early thoughts on anticoagulation with COVID-19, you know, how did this become an issue and what did some of those kind of first studies show us with, with, you know, VTEs, anticoagulation in our COVID patients?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think this is actually a very interesting story and I don't know if there's quite the the last ending chapter that's been written yet, but but if we go back to, you know, the audience members, when you're listening, like you, when you heard your first COVID patient, you know, was even anticoagulation on anybody's radar at that point at a, a high degree. And um, I know for here, it initially wasn't. But then um, as we kind of, uh, as I kind of walk everybody through those initial findings, it, it became like something that everyone was like laser focused on. Anticoagulation and, and really emphasizing its importance and, and um, one of the core therapies to, to help manage this disease. And so the initial findings actually came uh, clearly out of China, the, the origin of the disease. And so um, it was mostly a out of like descriptive reports, and of these reports, they really kind of just described the abnormal abnormal like uh, coagulation parameters that. Was kind of being uh, seen uh, anecdotally and kind of commonly uh, in these COVID nineteen patients, <clears throat> and so some of these abnormalities that were that were observed were kind of uh, longer PTTs and PTs. Um, and again, these are just abnormal uh, baseline coagulation parameters without any anticoagulation. And D dimer was one that was commonly seen to be elevated with IL six, you know, uh, ESR, CRP. Um, and actually, what's interesting is Lancet actually published a report, uh, 2020, and they they basically summarized that there was a higher risk of death in COVID patients if they had an elevated D-dimer at admission. And uh, elevated was kind of defined as that threshold of uh, greater than 1,000. Uh, they also did find some other covariates that were associated with a higher risk of death, but the D-dimer really kind of came on to the radar scene uh, after that publication and it's actually one that I will mention that e- at least at Banner Health, I, um, or at least my institution, Banner University Medical Center Phoenix, um, that's one that we actually would kind of help us kind of determine who we're going to, like, at least dial up on um, prophylactic doses. And so I'm, I'll get into that into the weeds of that a little bit later. But, but that was something that really kind of came about as far as like, okay, there's something funky going on with these coagulation parameters, uh, but we really don't know what to take away from it. And so really all it is is just an abnormal lab. Um, but then after that, more reports started to come out that there was actually an increased risk of thrombosis risk, and thrombosis being arterial as well as venous. And so now this is where the rubber hits the road. It's no longer just an abnormal lab. It's an actual increased risk of an adverse deleterious event. And so uh, the incidence of VTE in covid i c u um, in the i c u patients were was actually higher than what we would normally see uh from historical rates uh considering like pre covid and this was actually even despite uh prophylaxis and then also uh early on on reports i know uh New England Journal of Medicine uh, last year, they kind of came out with a report of looking at autopsy, like histological findings. Um, And what they're doing was actually comparing like COVID uh, with the H1N1 flu um, uh, outbreak. And what they noticed was one of the key differences between those two was that COVID was more associated with like diffuse alveolar hemorrhage and um, I guess more concerning, too, is that there was um, widespread like thrombosis and alveolar like microthrombi. And so really, it's kind of painting the picture. And again, this is all preliminary, so we, we, we didn't have really robust data to be like, aha, the light bulb moment. This is, what, this is what's happening. This is what we need to do. But, but from the pieces of the puzzle that we had at that time, and again, early on, was that abnormal labs were happening there was a, a signal suggesting that there was an increased risk of arterial and venous thrombosis, and that was corroborated by the fact that maybe we're not even detecting it because of that microthrombi um, and those rates of uh, thrombosis that was seen on, on autopsy studies. And so again, this is kind of the initial findings that we saw um, probably last spring to even summer. And so that kind of begged the question, as far as like what you're asking, Nick, uh, thoughts on anticoagulation now uh, in COVID-19, and as far as like strategies, um, I think one of the big things that we we kind of learned that VT prophylaxis was uh, clearly better than no prophylaxis in COVID uh, patients, and that was actually shown to improve outcomes. And I think these findings were based on some uh, studies, but also there was um, consensus based on this, some of those reports, but also experts really promoting the use of VT prophylaxis. Um, and I know you're probably scratching your head. You'd be like, wow, this is again, not like a huge earth shattering practice changing moment of prophylaxis better than no prophylaxis. But, but you have to recognize the fact that, you know, take ourselves out of your respective bubbles and probably the audience members of uh, being in the United States, that that is standard of practice with this pandemic, it was reaching all corners of the globe. And so you have to also understand that not all of those regions, um, uh, uh different countries, you know, adopted VT prophylaxis as standard of care. And so really, this was a, a really earth-shattering moment for some of those uh, uh, practices that'd be basically sending the message that if nothing else, I mean, if it's not part of your routine practice, at least in the COVID patient, uh, they should at least have VT prophylaxis at a minimum. And so this is kind of one of those things that really kind of shed the light to, to be like, okay, this needs to be the standard care globally, not just in um, certain uh, pockets or countries around the globe. There was also one of the other things that kind of came out that really had us scratch in our heads as well. And that was the concern of the quote unquote higher VT risk in COVID patients, even despite VT prophylaxis being on. And so this was actually, um, Kind of worrisome because basically it was kind of sending the the message, even though it's not based on robust data, that should we be doing something more than just doing our standard of prophylaxis dosing mm-hmm. that we commonly adopt, particularly like even in the ICU. And so, um, based on early reports, there was actually some countries, um, the U.S. being one of them, and I think it was Netherlands and France being some other countries that adopted the practice to actually dial up the prophylactic dose from what we commonly use today um, to kind of like an intermediate intensity. So not quite full anticoagulation, but kind of middle of the road, regardless of whether you're using heparin or low low molecular weight heparin. Um, And again, um, the the concern with that is that those practice changes were based on some of these anecdotal reports. And again, I'm going to emphasize not robust data. And more importantly, there wasn't any data specifically in COVID patients. Well, now, as we're kind of, like, neck deep in the pandemic, November of last year, the UK published their NICE guidelines, and in that, they actually came out and stuck their neck out a little bit and said they, uh, there should be consideration, so in other words, they were suggesting that a, quote-unquote, intermediate prophylactic dose uh, should be considered in patients on advanced respiratory support, so in other words, i.e., patients on invasive mechanical ventilation, So, so as a a reader of that guideline. I mean, you could use, say, like, the the average ICU COVID patient then would, quote-unquote, qualify Mm -hmm. for that kind of intermediate dosing strategy. So what's kind of also interesting is later last year, um, there was a a nice review article of kind of, like, experts of the Mm -hmm. um, Journal of American College of Cardiology, and they actually came out in the... uh, Jack said review article, and they actually came out and said uh, they recommend VT prophylaxis. Um, as most of us probably did early on, they were recommending low molecular weights over unfractionated, and that was just predominantly to preserve PPE equipment, uh, and again, assuming if there's no contraindications. Um, they also, furthermore, kind of, uh, again, took some liberties as far as suggesting uh, to extend the prophylaxis. So in other words, rather than just continuing while they have risk factors in the hospital, post-discharge from the hospital to, to continue that prophylaxis, whether it be in the form of a, um, a DOAC or a low molecular weight heparin, after hospital discharge, um, even up to this, uh, as far as like 45 days, so a month and a half prior, after you're out of the hospital, to continue prophylaxis. Now, again, this statement wasn't based on any uh, data Um, it was pretty much kind of extrapolated from some other acutely ill uh, comorbid states so again they were taking some liberties to do that and and again think of what we knew back then and what I just talked about as far as what we knew with the lab abnormalities the autopsy findings I mean it probably wasn't as far-fetched as we probably think it is as of today so again some people some of you listening probably are adopted that practice. I can say that we did Uh, clearly it has changed since then. But, uh, but again, we were just trying to, in the fog of war, come up with some sort of strategy as far as like, what is the best interest of the patients considering that we, what we knew, or what, at least what we thought we knew of um, the coagulation uh, issues and specifically in COVID-19. And then, uh, we kind of stumble across another uh, potential strategy, and that's more therapeutic anticoagulation. And so, uh, you know, there were some observational reports again, not robust data that suggested, not clearly defined, uh, lower mortality and improved outcomes with full anticoagulation over prophylaxis. So again, not necessarily the most robust data, but again, observational. Uh, non-interventional reports that suggested, okay, if you're using full anticoagulation in these patients, it might be advantageous, particularly from a uh, mortality standpoint. So, So I know I talked quite a bit, so I'm just going to highlight everything we went through. From the beginning, we knew that thromboembolic events were very concerning in COVID-19. It was nothing like we've we've ever seen before. There are high-risk populations, and then there's COVID-19, which was seemed to be a little bit uh, higher than what we would consider some other um, high-risk populations. Then the other thing was the VT prophylaxis. Um, standard care, that was probably not debatable at all. Uh, everybody should have been receiving that. So for those institutions uh, across the globe that were not incorporating that as far as their standard of care, um, that was emphasized as a uh, meaning for change. Then came the concern that uh, VT risk was potentially higher, um, even if they're on VT prophylaxis, and so then therefore may uh, warrant the intermediate dose. Um, extending the VT prophylaxis and then even consideration for therapeutic anticoagulation. So you can see as we're kind of walking down this winding road, um, as information comes out, and I'm just going to say information, not quality information, um, would kind of dictate where you would determine to buy off on to implement into your specific practice. And so as you can see, the lessons learned uh, with, you know, uh, high side being 2020. Um, Some of these were uh, clearly faulty, and some of it uh, is things we probably should have been doing from the very beginning. Um, But nonetheless, it's it's been a very winding road, and it's been, like I said, an interesting story thus far without uh, the last chapter being
2: written.
1: That was a great like narrative review of how we started to where we got there. Now, did you um, did you start focusing like in your institution on your anticoagulation kind of after those initial reports were coming out from from China about the different lab markers or was it more um, was it later in the game than that?
0: Yeah. So for me, it was kind of interesting because we know, we probably started sounding the alarm here probably in January um, to basically say, hey, we need to get our act together. Like, there's no game plan. Um, and so we're a part of a very large in- institution. And so kind of one of the things was Do we adopt something that is hospital wide. And keep in mind, we're 30 plus hospitals to get everybody on the same page in a short amount of time. Um, so we took on took a route as far as like, um, doing something institutional at that point, just to make it quick and easy to make sure that we had a game plan ready for, uh, when the big day was going to arrive. So everyone was at least prepared. And so we had those initial conversations. Um, and if you recall earlier, I said, you know, the, the significance of that D-dimer greater than a thousand. So we actually adopted, um, a practice that, okay, if your D-dimer is greater than a thousand, um, we're probably going to fully anticoagulate you. Um, and again, in, in hindsight, I can say that probably wasn't the best approach, but you probably understand where we're, I came up with the, mm-hmm. the D-dimer, um, or at least we came up with that. And then, um, you know, uh, the, the, therapeutic was probably something that we were just really concerned because we, again, anecdotally saw some patients kind of, yep. um, end up worsening and then they had a clot and then lo and behold, they're on just VT prophylaxis. So it, it kind of made the question Was a VTE there and it just got worse before they were even admitted to the ICU or even the hospital, um, with all that microthrombi concern, maybe we didn't just detect it, um, until, you know, things got really bad. And then we were like, okay, now we're dealing with a clot here. Um, so that kind of, it, like I said, it, it was really the fog of war and to, literally we had meetings like almost every day to see how things were going on here. Um, if nothing else, at least looking at our institutional data to see, like, okay, do we keep the course or do we make some changes? And I, I can tell you, we made several changes very quickly and rapidly. And to, pharmacy was very much involved in those conversations, but also we were the boots on the ground kind of making it the ch- yeah. changes happen. So if there was something to be happening, um, and we saw providers kind of deviating from what we thought was going to be kind of our script, scripted protocol for anticoagulation, um, you know, we quickly acted to inform those in, individuals and and to make sure that there was at least a standard of care uh, here in our organization so it was it was controlled chaos at best
1: i don't think you're you're alone in that i think it was you, you you we only have it was not great data but it was the only things we had so i don't think you're alone in that and for those listening Trying to create things for 30 hospitals when you have one probably large academic medical center to the small 100-bed rural access hospital and everywhere in between, it is uh, (laughs) challenging is probably the understatement of the year um, in terms of getting all those on the same page. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> so when you say intermediate dose, just to clarify, does that mean we'll kind of focus on like our low molecular weight heparins, like, like anoxaparin, for example, is that kind of doing like intermediate being like 0.5 mgs per kg Q12? Is that doing like the trauma dose of the VTE? Is it, is that kind of up in the air in terms of what intermediate is, just that it's higher than prophylaxis, like the, our standard prophylaxis?
0: Yeah, so so what uh, what we did here was at least for low molecular weight help REM, um, rather than doing like the make per kig, you know, Q twelve. Mm-hmm. Uh, we essentially just halved it. Um, yes. Did one make per kig um, daily, and I know that that is actually um, reflective in some of the studies that have now since have come out. Well, clearly, we didn't have that information back then, but um, cl- we were clearly shooting at the hip. And I know that some uh, information did come out that um, in some of these studies that their intermediate uh, doses that they use, uh, for example, like the uh, multi-platform RCTs, the, the REMAC CAP, the ACTIVE, and the ATTACC, they they did define um, at least linoxaparin as you know a, a mil- up to uh, a milligram per kilo per day. And so again, that it wasn't a one-size-fits-all, and there could be some little deviation. Um, but I'm sure that that's probably true in, in actual practice and outside of the RCTs as well.
1: So, so on des- in December of 2020, specifically December 22nd, the the NIH funded the active trial. Um, they kind of had a press release that kind of stopped the critical care world for in for a second. That basically stopped enrolling critically ill patients in this trial due to the potential harm um, that was identified by the independent oversight board. And this was basically testing therapeutic anticoagulation or not. So from that, do we have any further insight yet into the actual harm that was identified specifically related to ICU patients in in this trial? You know, that that is
0: a great question. Uh, so with this press release, and again, just to make sure we're all on the same page, this was from the preliminary and underlying that preliminary unpeer-reviewed data uh, in which the um, data uh, governing bodies determined that the, that the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. In other words, the risk was uh, potentially outweighing the benefit, and this was determined from some um, uh, surrogate um, a priori uh, markers that they were determining, looking at like efficacy and safety. And so of that, you have to understand that that, uh, this came from the collaboration of the three RCTs, the uh, multi-platform RCTs that came out. And so of these trials, the the question that they're really trying to answer here was the uh, circling around the domain of anticoagulation. and So really, what was the optimal anticoagulation strategy in COVID-19 specifically? Is it one uh, treatment in hospitalized patients, or is it just kind of usual care defined as just prophylaxis? So essentially, getting to the heart of the treatment versus prophylaxis debate, and in those uh, adult patients, they did break them down between ICU and non-ICU, so it did include both and it did tease out that data, uh, the preliminary data separately. And of the anticoagulation strategies of those, uh, each of those arms um, did consist of uh, low molecular weight heparin and heparin. So, so, again, it's not as pure as we would have liked, being like a single agent, being a single regimen. Um, but the question they were trying to answer really did focus on the primary outcome of looking at organ support-free days, up to 21 days, at least in the survivors. So this was a composite endpoint looking at um, organ support free. And so organ support basically was being defined as um, were these patients requiring mechanical ventilation, ECMO, were they on pressors, or were they um, uh, requiring like high-flow nasal cannula? So um, the investigators thought this was a meaningful uh, composite uh, endpoint that did have a measure of clinical relevance related to morbidity and mortality. And so... As a secondary endpoint, they did look at safety. Safety did entail major bleeding, um, and of that, uh, that was kind of where the concern kind of came from. And so, uh, if we look at the mortality piece, and again, they teased out the mortality in the inner, um, like the interim uh, preliminary data. Uh, but it, please keep in mind that this was part of a, the uh, larger composite uh, endpoint. And so, if we are looking at just ICU patients, and how they defined ICU was just kind of uh, severe state COVID patients um, was the term that they used, at least in the the, uh, paper. For those in the therapeutic anticoagulation, uh, the death rate was 35.3%, and that compared to 32.6% in usual care. And so, again, numerically, it was a little bit hot in the higher side. Again, didn't get into causality. Um, That was just the straight-up mortality rates in those two groups. Now, if we look at major bleeding, major bleeding in the ICU um, was for the therapeutic anticoagulation was 3.7%, and that, again, uh, was significantly or uh, at least uh, numerically higher than the prophylaxis group, which was 1.8. So, again, we're talking about more than a two-fold increase uh, risk of that major bleeding. So, based on the uh, formulas that they are using to define superiority and futility, It actually did meet that futility uh, marker to suggest that, yeah, um, this is concerning that the Data Safety Board um, actually did pause enrollment and participation, uh, at least in the ICU patients, um, for comparing therapeutic and unusual or usual care. um, And again, at least in the ICU uh, cohort. So it was really kind of looking at that uh, bleeding risk that I think really kind of hit the pause button. If we're not seeing an uh, improvement clinically um, and there is a slight signal for harm, I mean, clearly that's kind of where it came from. Now, uh, one of the, I guess, side discussions that we should be having is it was numerically higher and that 3.7% that we saw in the ICU in the therapeutic arm was not anything severely higher than what probably what was to be expected that we would normally see therapeutic anticoagulation. It's just in comparison to the prophylaxis group. But because of that, because it was almost a twofold increase, um, that kind of where it it hit the pause button. So I I do hope that we will see more ongoing uh, discussion as far as like what to make the heads and tails of that. Um, So again, on the surface it was a lot higher, but but really, at its essence, the 3.7 percent is not anything astronomical. That you know, I'm, I'm sure you would probably be like, okay, this is this is completely unacceptable, and no therapeutic anticoagulation should be warranted. So.
1: I guess that's just something that when you're when you were getting information that are that's pre-peer reviewed press releases. I guess those are things that um, just make interpreting all of that a little more challenging. Very much so. <laughs> so, um, we're we're in press release central here when we're talking about COVID uh, anticoagulation. And um, in January, the NIH sent out a, another press release um, that uh, included kind of patients from three international kind of study groups or data sets: um, the Attack Study, the REMAP, the REMAP CAP, and then the Active Foray. Um, and the press release basically said that. The therapeutic anticoagulation was inferior in ICU patients, but beneficial in non-ICU patients. Since then, we've also had a a peer-reviewed publication um, from BMJ that's looking at anticoagulation in VA patients, so with us having some press releases and then some peer-reviewed evidence Ultimately, and it, it, I, I think you said it brilliantly. That I don't think the chapter is written. But where do we, where do we stand now? Can you kind of help us make sense of what's happened in twenty twenty one with with this data so far?
0: Yeah. So, so the um, the multi platform RCTs, so the three trials that you just mentioned. Um, you know, that was the data that we just talked about. Um, so essentially, they did not find a benefit in the ICU. However, what's interesting is the benefit was actually found in the general ward population. And so that makes us kind of scratch our heads to be like, wouldn't, wouldn't you think the higher risk of throwing a clot in would be in the ICU? Mm-hmm. And so um, so that was kind of an interesting find. But before I kind of delve into my own thoughts and or t- interpretation, um, the other peer-reviewed publication that uh, you referred to that was... Uh, published last year, was actually a uh, large cohort uh, observational study of um, over like 4,000 COVID patients, and this was reflective of VA uh, patient population. So really, they looked at, even though this isn't the question that you're asking me, Nick, they were kind of comparing the anticoagulation versus the no anticoagulation debate, Um, but however, to kind of cut to the chase, they actually did look at ICU data um, of anticoagulation Uh, post hoc, and they also did find and did report, and again, this is post hoc analysis, that in the ICU that there was no mortality benefit, but they did find it in the general ward. So again, this is corroborating what we saw in the multi-platform RCTs, where the general ward patients were the ones to reap the benefit from anticoagulation and not necessarily from the ICU. So this is where it gets really messy. Um, if you look into the, uh, multi-platinum RCTs, the, the, uh, therapeutic and the usual care groups are, um, not as, uh, homogenous as we probably would have liked. So in other words, there were different agents. I know in the United States, typically it's pretty much heparin or an um, But, however, keep in mind that, you know, since this was uh, multinational, uh, there were other low-molecular-weight heparin agents. And the regimens um, varied quite a bit. So, in other words, they weren't always um, the same for even each agent with each in uh, the therapeutic as well as the prophylaxis group. Um, So they did use some intermediate-intensity dosing, even though there wasn't an intermediate-intensity arm. So, again, if you go back, mm. it's therapeutic versus prophylaxis in the multi-platinum RCTs. But some of the dosing strategies could be easily classified as kind of like a middle-of-the-road intermediate uh, dosing intensity. So, for example, uh, the uh one of the doses that was uh, reported being used was a milligram per kilo daily and not necessarily twice a day in uh, the treatment arm. So there were, even though they were in the minority, again, this is kind of muttering the waters of how we're interpreting that, that information. So we're using different regimens, we're using different agents. Um, So maybe that is part of the explanation of why we did not see, um, or I guess why we saw some, um, some differences in the different patient populations. Um, However, And again, this is completely conjecture, but one of the other things to also consider is maybe that the damage has already been done by the time that they get to the ICU. And maybe that clot, you know, we detected after the fact, because usually we're not going to be looking for something until, you know, they're clearly displaying signs and symptoms or they're getting worse. Mm -hmm. Maybe that was already there, and maybe that's why... The ICU population, you know, we saw a higher risk of bleed, and we didn't see that benefit because maybe that, that, that clot was already there, and they were already on on uh, clinical uh, progression was kind of on the on the decline. So um, again, we emphasize as purely conjecture, but um, but nonetheless, uh, if we're going to follow the data, the the benefits in the general war population, not necessarily at the ICU, uh, at least at this moment in time, for therapeutic anticoagulation.
1: I think that's a really good conjecture, and I think if you've, um, which you've obviously been, I think if you're looking into like some of the editorials and things that have been written on some of the anticoagulation, I don't think you're alone in that in that thought or sentiment in terms of um, thinking of why why that's maybe happening and why we're seeing benefit in non ICU patients first. So yeah,
0: it's, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but uh, but like I said, hopefully we'll. We'll get some more insight into that once um, you know the the full peer reviewed article, at least to that multi um, platform RCTs have been published. So,
1: and you kind of shared in terms of you know thinking for the regimens from specifically like a low molecular weight heparin standpoint of kind of doing that intermediate dose, kind of doing a mig per kig, but thinking in terms of like our selection of of agents. I think with the PPE. Shortages and and everyone um, appropriately so being worried about having all those um, th- that protective um, um, equipment and things. I think a lot of us were using low molecular weight heparins once a day versus you know three times a day. But in people who may not be ideal low molecular weight candidates. Do we know, sh- should we be just trying to dose reduce it? Is it okay to use unfractionated heparin if you don't have PPE issues or is it, do, do we have much guidance as to one agent is better than another in terms of which we're using?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And so basically, is there a robust role for low molecular weight um, to be used, I guess, routinely in, in the ICU? and so. That's difficult because I know everybody's um, acuity and comorbidities of what they're seeing, um, you know, is is a small rural uh, community hospital going to be the same as like an urban, you know, tertiary care environment uh, that's going to be the same as a VA. So I think that's also kind of reflected in a lot of these RCTs. Um, There wasn't one specific agent that was particularly used. Um, So if we go back uh, to that uh, multi-platform uh, RCTs, those three tr- uh, trials that were kind of simultaneously going on, you know, the predominant agent that was used um, for therapeutic anticoagulation was uh, not quite 50%, um, but it was it was relatively high. Uh, the information that was not reported was how much of that was being used actually in the ICU. And so uh, it, it remains difficult to say and so this is one of the things that we struggled with, and again, I'm going to kind of go off of what's been published and kind of more reflective of one of the issues that we dealt with that probably a lot of the audience members can relate to as well. We initially went into the game plan with trying to optimize anoxaparin uh, use, whether it be uh, prophylaxis or therapeutic, um, just because clearly you're in and out of the room less often, therefore, you know, uh, clearly preserving the the coveted PEE at that time. Mm -hmm. The issues that we ran into was, you know, we're dealing with a lot of obese patients. We were dealing with a lot of patients that were like 250 kilos Mm -hmm. plus. We also clearly were dealing with like a lot of issues with um, renal dysfunction. And so, uh, again, like how comfortable were you or, or better, the better question to ask was how comfortable were we, were we to say, okay, like parent, that's going to be the agent that we're going to be using, whether it be therapeutic or uh, prophylaxis. And we, we just were not as comfortable. It was more convenient, but clearly the trade-off was, uh, again, we're kind of flying blind, at least therapeutic with all those other mm-hmm. comorbidities, whether it be weight and renal dysfunction, at least we kind of knew or at least thought we knew where we were at from an anticoagulation standpoint to really optimize care based on the lab parameters that we we're able to, to, to draw from. So we're using anti-10 for, um, our heparin infusions. Um, prophylaxis was kind of a toss up. I mean, if there really wasn't any other compelling reason of, you know, um, contraindications or other concerns of using low, low molecular weight heparins. I mean, we would try to do that, uh, more often than not, but clearly the vast majority of these patients, um, going to have some sort of issue that was going to throw a wrench in the equation to be like, okay, the, the gauge on our comfort level is kind of off the charts. And so we really wanted an agent that we, we were not going to be committed at least for any issues of bleeding, but also, you know, for the efficacy as well. Um, so that's kind of the stance that we took. We, we initially came out of the gate thinking, okay, is going to be the way to go. Um, but clearly, a lot of our patients, we just were not comfortable, especially like therapeutic, to, to go down that road. So, mm-hmm.
1: Well, that was, in, in terms of, uh, with as murky of the waters as anticoagulation and COVID is the thank you so much. I, I think there's a lot of, of insight that a lot of people gathered from that. So um, I, I loved that. Now, for completeness sake, I think, you know, we'll still kind of cover a couple more of our of our other COVID-19 um, interventions or treatments. And um, maybe we'll just get a, a quick Couple, couple sentence or one-liners from you all of where we kind of stand with these, um, which would be convalescent plasma and then remdesivir. So, Mitchell, kind of let you take the lead and discuss the use of plasma. You know, should we still be using it in inpatients and things like that? And, and then, um, Amy, we'll kind of switch gears to you for kind of a quick uh, remdesivir update as to where we are now with with those two agents. I think a lot of us are using more um, in the earlier stages of, of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, so I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, get started off with the, the plasma. At least we, we had used it sparingly.
0: Um, we didn't consider it like a, like a the core tool that we're using to help manage these patients. But I would say like with the data that we have now, you're going to be really hard-pressed to, you know, use a widespread, at least with the publications um, out of JAMA and New England Journal of Medicine uh, earlier this year, that the, the data is not really overwhelming to support its use. And so really, we very, very sparingly use it uh, here now, so... I would say the, the, the takeaway is probably, it's, it's probably not going to be your, your cornerstone treatment strategy.
2: Yeah, and in terms of remdesivir, we've seen such a evolution of that also. <laughs> in the, at least the surge in New York City, it really was only available uh, through research protocol, and then there was... Um, the approval which we had a little bit more access to but that was all allocated by the government uh, but trying to use it in most people because that's, that's the one agent we have to hang our hat on but I, I don't think there's any major role to initiate an ICU patient. Uh, I believe there should be a consideration to complete the therapy if it started prior to somebody coming in the ICU and perhaps getting intubated uh, certainly continuing on the path of the short course treatment which would be five days as compared to ten days uh, I think maybe there's been a little bit of discussion. Initially, folks were really hesitant to give remdesivir to patients with reduced creatinine clearances or on some sort of renal replacement therapy, but there's been a number of observational retrospective studies demonstrating maybe not harm in those patients. I think the same vehicle we see in boriconazol that um, we use quite frequently in mm-hmm. patients with renal failure. So, um, But I don't think there's much more that's been published on this agent.
1: Yes, I I great summaries. I completely I agree on all fronts there. Now, Amy, I, I hinted at this in your as we were kind of as I was reading your introduction, um, but you have um, been involved with both the NIH and the Surviving Sepsis Campaign COVID nineteen treatment guidelines. So, before we kind of briefly talk about the guidelines themselves, what was the experience like being involved with? with writing and participating in these guidelines in a, in a social distancing world, because there's probably times where, you know, you would have reconvened at you all would have met at SECM and done probably a large table, like um, meeting, talking about some of these things. So I'm guessing there's less in-person, but with the zoom eras, I'm guessing there may have been trade-offs of more interactions and things. So take us, take us behind the scenes a little bit of how that was. Cause I think that's always just so fascinating.
2: And foremost, I, I am extremely privileged and honored to have been part of both of the guideline development. Uh, I, you know, I, reflecting back when I was in pharmacy school, I never would have thought this, you know, pandemic would have happened and these opportunities would have come up. Um, I, I feel like I'm just a small little cog in a very huge wheel uh, with both of these guidelines. Very, uh, a very smart, multidisciplinary group of people, and I think we all draw upon each other's strengths. Uh, when we're evaluating the literature and we're coming up with recommendations. Uh, yeah, it's very true. It's it's At some point, our Zoom calls, at least for the NIH panel, will be 50-plus people, uh, and to corral 50 very opinionated people <laughs> uh, sometimes can be quite <laughs> difficult, but the, the staff at the NIH do it very well. We're divided into teams, uh, so each team comes up they're we're a bit more specialized within our team. So, um, I'm of course in the critical care group, and we're able to dissect the literature a little bit differently than perhaps team two, which is focused on inpatients but not ICU. So, I think it's a it's a it's a great mix of of how people come together and really have their talents optimized to to really in, in come up with a set of guidelines that people can use at the practical level. I think that's one big difference between the NIH guidelines and the SSC is that NAH really um, talks about how to manage patients at different stages of the infection, so from outpatients and then inpatients if they have moderate or severe or critical illness, where obviously the SSC guidelines really focus on the care of the critically ill patients. Uh, and directly with COVID-19 and all other types of supportive care strategies that go along with that.
1: Oh, that's, that's, I, I love hearing those things. And and I'll just say from the outside looking in, I would say that you, um, you're definitely um, uh, belong on the table with the multidisciplinary talent. I know you, you mentioned that there's quite a few there, but, um, now, what are some of now, and we'll kind of focus more on maybe some of the the meds or, or interventions we've talked about today, or maybe about our ICU patients. But are there any differences to to highlight for the audience that are kind of between the two guidelines where they may differ in a in a recommendation um, with some of our COVID nineteen um, interventions.
2: Uh- Yeah, gosh, that's a a really great question. It's hard to marry the two guidelines together because the way their rating system on the recommendations are are just very polarizing. You have the NIH that is is a combination of scientific evidence and expert opinion. And so there's a strength of recommendation. uh, And then there's the quality of evidence. So you'll see a an A, B, or C rating, and then a 1, 2, or 3 for the quality. Mm -hmm. Um, And and all of that is outlined at the beginning of the guideline, but that varies quite differently from the uh, surviving sepsis guidelines, which uses the grade approach, in which you have a structured PICO question, and then a final list of recommendations, followed by the panel discussion and consensus. So I think they read very differently, but I will say that many of the members that are on the surviving sepsis guideline are also on the NIH, and so we try to make them consistent as much as possible because we don't want to confuse people, especially when it comes to the care of the critically ill patient.
1: So more more methodologic differences than ultimately true differences in interventions or or um like treatment interventions.
2: That's right. That's yeah.
1: Mm. Well, I I really appreciate both of you coming on today. I think, you know, both of your insight and knowledge has just been incredibly helpful, even just for me, let alone the audience itself. So and we'll, Amy. I'll kind of start with you, and then we'll shift to Mitch here. But what would you, what would you both consider to be a couple important points to reiterate when thinking about kind of the treatment and and the care of these COVID nineteen patients?
2: Well, I'll start with uh, don't forget just the basic tenets of critical care medicine. Uh, I think we can get caught up in the wave of COVID nineteen and thinking about what's novel and what's going to cure these patients, but remembering the basics. And I'll just go back to Fast Hugs or Fast Hugs BID Mm -hmm. very briefly, but all of that's going to improve our patient care also. And I think if we forget about those things, we're forgetting about some major, or we're potentially omitting major things that we can do to improve the morbidity and mortality of our patients. Uh, The second piece that I would say is just Make sure you're reading the literature very carefully. Uh, There's a lot of publications. It's extremely overwhelming. Uh, Making sure you think about what are the baseline characteristics of the patients. What's the baseline mortality? Uh, What basic critical care, if you're looking at that particular patient population, did they provide at baseline that would be considered standard? Uh, Because that, that can muddy the waters. What point in time are you looking at this study, right? So I think I emphasized enough with the map What was the percentage of patients that were on steroids at the time? Because I think that, mm-hmm. quite frankly, made a difference. Um, but it, it's it's hard. This is this has been a year of data, and it's been a very long saga that we have to disentangle a lot of noise uh, from from the literature.
0: And I guess to kind of piggyback off what Amy said was, you know, the, the noise content is is extremely overwhelming. I mean, how many publications for those of you getting table of content emails that you know come out that have something to do with COVID was just uh, it, it was it was making me cross-eyed looking at it sometimes, and I'm sure some of you felt the same way. Which I can refer you to an op- awesome ophthalmologist to help that correct that uh, issue. <laughs> um, but to me, the, I guess here's something more pragmatic. You know, with that, a lot of that information come, coming out, you don't want to be the first one jumping on that bandwagon, but you also don't want to be the last. And so here's where I think these discussions really come into play as far as, you know, uh, collaborating with colleagues to to go over this, not just of within your own respective institutions or health systems, but really having these conversations to be like, okay, this data came out, you know, are we buying into it? And more importantly, is it enough to make a decision to change our practice based on this information? Um, and so I think it's really important to to really critique and hit the pause button um, because, again, like, you know, we found uh, anticoagulation to be really beneficial in the general war patients, and I know this is an ICU uh, audience, but are we really going to start fully anticoagulating that? all these patients widespread. And so really, I think that is where we really need to have the medical community leaders really kind of come out uh, to help, you know, with the investigators as well, kind of come out and talk about this information and critique it and give it the same robust peer review that we normally would for any other trial before we kind of jump on that bandwagon um, and uh, really kind of adopt practices with, uh, without doing our due diligence. So. <sighs>
1: Words of wisdom there. I hope everybody was listening that. Um, now, Mitch, if anyone is has looked at your um, Twitter bio, it, it mentions not only an Iowa, an Iowa Hawkeye, but a a college football addict and MLB junkie. So I have I have a two part question here. A, are you are you doing okay after after Iowa and Luke Garza's performance in the tournament? And are you just in heaven right now with the start of the MLB season getting going?
0: Uh, the first part is a part of me died that day in which they lost. Um, <laughs> but I, I can live with that. <laughs> and then, uh, yes, uh, this is the first spring training season I missed in, in a long time because of COVID. Uh, they, we, all the spring training facilities in Phoenix opened back up for the Cactus League. Uh, but I just wasn't at my comfort level to, to go out there, mask or no mask. So,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, so hopefully that will change for next year and things will get back to normal. So,
1: and speaking of getting back to normal a little bit, Amy, what is it like going around New York? Is it, cause I'm guessing it, during the pandemic, I bet it was eerie at times. Has it, is it starting to feel like obviously not full New York, but is it starting to get, to get back closer to what you're familiar with?
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, Yes. <laughs> um, it's still a little sad walking down the streets of New York. A lot of like, mom-and-pop shops closed up. A lot of things are still boarded. But I feel slowly New York is coming back to that baseline. You know, the pushing and the shoving is back. and <laughs> <laughs> The crowded subways, it still make me, I'm not going to lie, a little nervous. Yes. But uh, yeah, during the height of the, the pandemic or the surge here that we saw in New York, it was, it was, it was surreal. Uh, actually, at one point, even uh, on a warm day, I walked down to Times Square uh, from where I live, and I took some pictures, and I just the streets were completely bare, and it was noon. There wasn't a soul on the street. There was wow. a car on the road, and it was so eerie. And even I got this one picture of um, one of the gift shops in the middle of where all the Broadway shows are, and it says it's some phantom gift shop, and it's all boarded up, and it was like... It's like, you know how a picture can just say a thousand words. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's Broadway, New York is one of the things that I'll be very excited to go back and hopefully they're able to make it through because gosh, it's, it was, it's weird not having Broadway shows and you know, you live there. So obviously you know that too, but you know, lots of many things we hope to come back. That's one of them. Um, so, for any of the listeners wondering, yes, the Amy and Mitch are, are both on Twitter. So the the Twitter accounts at uh, Amy Zerba. Amy got her actual name on the Twitter account, so that's amazing there. And then um, Mitch is at M Buckley Farm D. Um, so feel free to follow them. Um, definitely reach out if you have any questions or anything. But Amy and Mitch, I I really thank you both for for coming on and helping make sense of all of this. And thank you for all your help with all this stuff in in the COVID era when we were trying to make sense of all this information. Um, Y'all have been um, a real help and and invaluable with some of that. So I appreciate you both.
2: Well, the service that you provide with the podcast is just uh, invaluable. So thank you for your dedication to that. And once again, it was an honor to come back. So thanks for asking.
0: Yeah, Nick, uh, this was truly a pleasure. And I appreciate all the, the time and energy you put into this. This was very, very helpful.
1: I I appreciate you both. And hopefully will will our paths will cross when, when uh, um, we get away from virtual conferences and go back to in-person. So I, I appreciate you all. And uh, have a good rest of your day. You as well.
2: Yes, you too. Here's to drinks in PR.
1: Yeah. <laughs> What an absolutely fantastic episode with Mitch and Amy! Thanks again for the to them for joining me. Um, a quick heads up: I uh, incorrectly said Mitch's Twitter account on the um on the portion of the the interview earlier. He's actually at at Mitch B Farm D. Um, so be sure to to follow that. That's the one we have highlighted on all the posts and things. Um, episode went a little long um, today, so no mailbag, but don't worry. Got a got a good one teed up for next time. And the literature review series is coming, so more to follow. Uh, lots of things in the pipeline there, but um, I think it'll be a lot of fun, and we're doing our best to make it so that it doesn't feel like we're listening to a one-hour journal club. So um, hopefully... You all are as excited about that as, as I am. Um, be sure to email PharmacyToDose at gmail.com. Mailbag questions, suggestions, things that I can be doing better. Absolutely. Twitter at Pharmacy to dose. T O T O D O S. As always, show notes, reference notes, and things are in the podcast episode description, as well as at PharmacyToDose.com, the show website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.